The Mind Sponsor for today is upcoming podcast series, Personality Sleuths. Personality Sleuths will be co-hosted by Dr. J. Galen Buckwalter, whose career includes being the founding chief science officer of eHarmony and me, leveraging my experience as a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. We will analyze personality using a speech-based proprietary AI algorithm, along with the clues evident in social media and the popular press. Each episode will dissect the life of someone famous who gained the trust of many before becoming notorious for duping people, committing a crime, or losing exorbitant amounts of money, all while the clues were there all along and how they spoke. Tune in soon. Our heart sponsor for today is Decoding Success. Decoding Success enables you to get a feel for the personality of the people with whom you are interacting passively, without alerting the party that you are doing it, such as would happen typically when a questionnaire is used, the only other means to capture the analyzable data. Using text from emails, messages, or a Twitter account, Decoding Success can optimize your chances for a successful encounter by prepping you ahead of time. Want to know about that entrepreneur in whose company you are contemplating an investment prior to the pitch meeting? Want to screen which candidates will be best suited to join your team before you even meet them? Visit D-E-C-O-D-I-N-G-S-U-C-C-E-S-S.com. On this episode, we have Deb Crow. Deb was born and raised in Canada, where she remains today. She spent the bulk of her career as a medical case manager focusing on neurotrauma. She shifted about 10 years ago to focus on heart-centered executive coaching. She teaches yoga in a geriatric setting and is the host of her own podcast called The Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Deb, thank you so much for being on our show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. We were brought together by our mutual friend, Jeff Paietto, and had a wonderful conversation, and you were gracious to accept my invitation to be on the show, and uh, I've really been looking forward to it since then. That's I have too. It's just, it's, it's serendipitous how you can cross paths with one person and then they lead you to another person. And it yeah. really shows that we really are two degrees, two degrees of separation, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. That's why opportunity to meet people. I never shy away from, I, I'm mm-hmm. always seeking that because, you know, there's a, <clears throat> an alignment of purpose and, and vision, which uh, we share um, which is superb. And it just feels like, um, you know, you feel less isolated when you discover that. Especially during a pandemic, right? No pun intended. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's a key part of it. Yeah. Well, Deb, I like to start from uh, the very beginning. And so uh, you were born and raised in Canada. Share with us about that. Was it, was it London, Ontario, where you're talking to us from now? I, I live here now in London, um, grew up actually in several small rural communities. Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur, so we moved mm. around a lot. I often refer to myself as an outlander because we would just get settled in somewhere for a couple of years and get used to the new school and get a new circle of friends and then we'd be moving again. So landed here in 1980 for high school, started grade nine here and I've been here ever since and uh, I call London home now for sure. That's great. I appreciate that. And I can see that entrepreneurship is in your DNA now, uh, <laughs> which is fantastic. Um, tell us about the things you were interested in growing up. Did you read a lot? Were there certain subjects you were drawn to? 
I have always loved being outside. So regardless of the weather or the season, uh, no, no shoes, sandals, bare feet. I just loved being outside. I loved because we lived in the country. At one point we lived on a hundred acre farm, always had a dog and just would run the acres in our back forest and, and get lost on my own little adventures because we lived in the country. So it wasn't like your friends were right next door. Mm -hmm. uh, belonged to, you know, community clubs, brownies and girl guides. I know it's a little different names than what you have in the States. Always involved in volunteering right back to, I think, grade five, maybe 10 years wow. old. So always had some some level or proponent of server servant leadership in me, but didn't know till years later when I became an adult what that really was. So I think that was something that was really fostered, but um, had a, I think I had a relatively normal, I'll put normal in quotes, uh, childhood and belonged to, like I said, lots of clubs, uh, was a gymnast, uh, com oh. competed in, in gymnastics. So I love that. And then when I moved to London here, I landed up teaching it at our YMCA to, to young wow. children. So that was kind of a, a full circle moment, but that's, that's about as far as my athletic agility went was, uh, was gymnastics. Okay. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Well, having nature as your kind of laboratory is, is really phenomenal as, as an upbringing and um, <clears throat> acts of service are definitely a, a important part of your ethos and what motivates and drives you. And it's fascinating to hear that the seeds of that were really planted uh, at, at a very young age. Um, and did that influence come from your parents? Were they very active as well? You know, my dad was an entrepreneur and I think during that time, because I was born in the 60s, so my dad mm -hmm. wasn't home a lot and my mom yeah. was like, you know, the June Cleaver, like the housewife <laughs> that was dressed nice and the kids were clean and the kids were to be seen and not heard, right? But the meals right. were on the table and I just, I slant towards that because those were the shows that we watched growing up, you know, Leave sure. it to Beaver and the Waltons and Family Affair and the Brady Bunch. And that was really our time. And I think the 60s was pivotal because that's when we started seeing kind of social economics of when divorce really started being more widely talked about and accepted. And it's also when daycare started. So it was really a decade of, of change. But my mom didn't work outside the home because wives mm -hmm. didn't then. Yeah, no, it's understandable. Yeah, wow. Um, do you have siblings, Deb? I do. I ha I am the youngest of five, and they're my two wow. oldest brothers have passed away, mm -hmm. and I still I'm have sorry. one older brother and one older sister. But I'm the baby. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, and uh, are they close by in terms of uh, living uh, Within today? an hour. Yeah, within an hour's drive. Um, my brother and both my siblings actually have been uh, entrepreneurs as well over their lifetime. So my oldest brother is, is on the heels of retirement. And my sister is very much a servant leader as well. Amazing. Nice. So family traits for sure. Tell us about uh, university. Um, what did you decide to study? I originally was going to do occupational therapy mm -hmm. and started school and my dad passed away. 
so did a big U-turn there. Um, So I landed up doing some different jobs before deciding three years later to start my own company. And then eventually I did go back to university uh, after I got married and had children and pursued disability case management with a focus on neuroscience. Okay, amazing. Well, tell us about this company you started. So the name of my company, I named it after my dad, actually. So my dad's name was David William. So I thought, how could I carry on the legacy of my dad and have that that daily influence, that daily reminder? So I took a little bit of Dave and a little bit of William, and I created the word Davwill. So I just called it Davwill Consulting, Inc., and started it at 24 after a mentor of mine Uh, took me out for lunch and basically told me that the job that I was working in, that I was going to be losing my job that day. Mm -hmm. And he wanted me to know that it had nothing to do with my ability, but more of the insecurity of the female boss that I have. So I just learned Mm -hmm. last year, it's actually called tall poppy syndrome. And I was a (sighs) recipient of that for four years. So much, pretty much after my dad passed away, right up until I started my company. And um, I started my company like a week later. And this coming May, the end of May of 2021 will be my 31st year. That's phenomenal. That's great. What type of clients um, have you been working with and how has that evolved? Well, I started in the disability management sector uh, because I had a real agility for technology. So I was really proficient, self-taught with the operating systems of DOS and Unix Mm -hmm. and was doing some consulting. I was teaching at our local college and then Microsoft came along with a new little operating system called Windows. Mm-hmm. And it blew the doors open for success for me because I was working with a lot of different ages with different types of disabilities. So anybody that had an augmentative or a communication device, none of the occupational therapist or speech language pathologists could get their devices working on Windows. So I saw an opportunity wow. and yeah. I I rode that wave for many, many years. And then one day I had a law firm call me and said, you should really be a case manager. And I said, well, but I'm not a nurse. And they're like, that's why we want you to case manage because you bring that outside of the box type of thinking. You look at the whole picture and that's kind of how that fell on my lap. And I just leaned into my schooling and all the different experiences that led me up to that. And then the next thing I had to hire three staff to manage what I had already built because I was being pulled to manage some really complex files that either nobody wanted to spend the time or develop the rapport with the family. And I joked because I often, I I felt like Aaron Brockovich, like I got all these messy, (laughs) messy files that were hard and nobody wanted to kind of, you know, pull the, pull the hip wires on and, and add in the, the grit and the, and the tenacity. But the hardest part wasn't learning about the file or gaining resources for the clients. It was having to develop trust and rapport with a family when you were the yeah. second person in their life. You know, I would get, well, what are you going to do that the one before you didn't? And it was just like, 
Oh boy. So I think that servant leadership has served me on rinse and repeat for decades. And it has shown up in different ways through different people, through different scenarios. And it's fun to look back at it now being three decades in going, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. That's so wonderfully said. And gosh, your um, your clients and your patients have certainly been the beneficiaries of uh, of that uh, and your your orientation. So that, that's really fantastic. And I just love how you you found your calling. Um, you just sort of followed uh, what came natural to you and followed your intuition, and, and uh, this is where it led. And so. Um, <clears throat> uh, just looking at your bio, you spent about two decades in uh, neurotrauma case management. Is this what the law firm had asked you to get involved with? It did. I got all of the catastrophic brain injury, spinal cord injury. I was one of the few case managers in my area who was willing to not only serve the adult population, but also the pediatrics. I mean, the pediatrics are tough. And I was a mom, so, you know, it's hard not to think of those little people as, as your own when you're caring for them. And I always wanted the best of the best for them. And you also have a long-term relationship. I mean, my youngest client was two years old mm-hmm. and I had him for a long time. So you, you didn't just get that little person, you got a whole family. And, and when you look at the dynamics of whether it's psychosocial or social economic, it wasn't always great before the trauma, the illness, the accident. So you had all of that as well. And I made it till just over two decades. And I say that with a heavy heart because I loved, absolutely loved the direct patient care. What succumbed me to feel broken and empty was the systems, the the lawyers, the insurance companies, yeah. and going to court and having to defend and testify for a patient that was so catastrophically ill. And I remember saying to my husband, I can't do this anymore. I yeah. my heart has left the building. And then I landed up with some short-term disability claims with five executives. Hmm. And that was the turning point for me. They all went palliative and they all led healthy lifestyles. And I held all their hands and Hmm. they were like, if anybody's going to do something, it's you. And I was like, okay, I got to get out of this generalist space and become a preventionist. And they said to me, we didn't speak our truth and we succumbed to climbing the corporate ladder and then not honoring our voice and speaking our truth. And now we're full of cancer. You got to do something. And I was like, okay, what's a natural transferable skill from case managing to coaching? And then when I became a coach and really focused and toned in on my neuroscience, I realized I coached so much when I was case managing. And now that I'm coaching, I'm realizing how much the case manager is needed in this role. So it's almost like this divine intersection of the two different areas of my business that I chose, but they both link up and intersect with servant leadership. 
No, that's brilliant. I love that. I can certainly see the thread of connectivity between the two. And um, I can only imagine the toll it took on you emotionally when you were doing purely case management. Um, as a, you're an empath, it's quite clear. And so, uh, you know, just owning that uh, emotional strain and drain must have been so much. I mean, would you say you, you were burnt out at the end of that? Oh, I was beyond burnt out. I, um, I think I, I remember saying to my husband, I, I, we were just getting into the dot coms back then. It was 2010. And I said to him, I think I've landed at beyond dot com. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I hired a business coach and I said to her, I need, I need an exit strategy. I've got, I'm going to give myself a year, a year and a half. So we came up with the exit strategy. I called all of my families. They were very sad, very upset. And it took me to spend time finding not the right case manager from a service point of view or an excellence point of view but a personality point of view. Yeah, of course. My files had to go to seven different people. Wow. So that that really gave me introspection because yes, it didn't absolutely. matter if you were, you know, a Harley Davidson biker guy, which I did. I, I looked after someone who was a hell's angel or you were a wealthy international university professor here on sabbatical. It didn't matter what environment I sat in or how much money they had or how many initials they had after their name or didn't have after their name. I always showed up as the same Deb Crow. Amazing. So when you talk about the empath and you know what I did as a little kid, I fostered the ability to learn to listen to myself and be silent. Mm -hmm. And I realized each decade how much I needed to be alone to recharge because I'm a thought leader. I'm always thinking, I'm always higher level thinking of coming up with a treatment plan or managing a large team. And I also did work in, in the U.S. So different policies, different procedures, different rules, different regulations and balancing all those different types of vocations and different levels of professionals and government. And it was a lot. And yeah, I was totally empty when I, I got on a plane, mm -hmm. I finished my last, my last uh, court case. I went on a mastermind retreat with my coach in Tuscany, mm -hmm. Italy. And I remember getting on the plane and I yep. said goodbye to my husband and my kids. And I had nothing left even for myself. I treated myself to first class. Nice. I didn't even speak to the gentleman beside me. <laughs> I just, I unplugged and I got to Italy. You. Yeah, I got to Italy and it was an emotional seven days. And then I had a friend there from Africa and I went home with her to Paris, France for another four days. And I think it all hit me when I finally came back home. And I was literally beyond fatigue, beyond stress, beyond exhaustion. I, I landed in that beyond.com space and I did nothing for six months. I just allowed myself to be. Good.
No, that's so important to do. Um, Deb, you seem to have this natural intuition of self-care and knowing what you need to do. And I mean, even just your intuition of creating an exit strategy. And you mentioned something a short bit ago, being able to sit in silence and listen. It's, um, it's an amazing skill and it's not one that many people do much to their detriment. Um, was that something that uh, you, you learned of or is that something that you've just intuitively always done, listening to yourself and being silent? I think I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm. And I really honed it when I decided to become a yoga teacher. Mm, I became a yoga teacher for two reasons. I had a very tumultuous relationship with my mother. And mm. I thought the only way I'm ever going to heal the inner child is to go inside and do the work. And I remember the yoga teacher's words to me. She said, I will accept you for teacher training on one most important point. And I was like, okay, because I thought, oh, maybe I have to have some kind of athletic certification or a personal trainer. I didn't know, right? And she said, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I said, okay. She said, I will accept you into my training if you're willing to lie all your shit on the table. And I'll never forget wow. it. And I went, Amazing. I'm in. And, and I learned that that was my first reason. And my second reason is, is I wanted to deepen my skill to be a better listener. So you can't, well you can't hone silence until you listen to self. Cause when you listen to self, it opens the gateway of self-awareness oh, to be able to listen to others. The sound went out. My sound went out. Did I lose you? You have me? Is it there? Hello? Still not able to hear. Back? Oh, okay. Now we're back. Thank you. All right. That's so curious. I wonder what happened. Oh, I don't know what happened. The <laughs> angels. There the angels appeared. <laughs> Well, if you could go back to what you said, in, in order to listen to silence, you have to listen to self. That's where I lost you. In order to listen to silence, you have to listen to yourself because self-awareness is the gateway to self-care. Mm -hmm. And self-care is the on-ramp to really being able to listen to other people. So when you have that inner self-awareness, and I always joke with people, and it's such an old metaphor or cliche, but listen and silent have the same letters in them for a reason because they're synonymous. That's beautiful. I've never thought of that or heard that before. That's so excellent. Yeah, that's going to stay with me. <laughs> and as a yoga teacher, one of my favorite yoga teachers, uh, Yoga with Adrian, I love her. She taught me a beautiful mantra for 2021 because, you know, different breath practices can evoke emotion. They can help us with somatic emotional release if we're holding on to stuff. But my favorite mantra that I learned this year from her was my breath is my anchor. My anchor is my breath. Mm. 
And, and in, and in, and in COVID times, it's like every time I feel even just a little glimpse of any kind of dis-ease, I just stop and I breathe and I say that. And it's like, I'm in the moment. I'm right here. I love that. That is so great. And it, it's, um, it really speaks to how significant breath is because it is the most accessible tool we have to regulate our emotions. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do it instantaneously. And it, uh, it's so universal. You know, it doesn't require us to enter like a meditative state. It doesn't require a yoga mat <laughs> and space to be able to do yoga. It's just, it's instantaneous. And so I think that that's, that's so fantastic. Um, Deb, at what stage of your career did you do the yoga teacher training? Was this while you were still a neurotrauma case manager? or No, I did it after. I did it, let me think, 2021, four years ago. Wow, okay. so Yeah, so got- fairly, uh, and it was funny because I... I don't even know how it came up in conversation. Someone said, oh, you should go do this. And I was thinking, I I have enough on my plate. And then, you know, there was that other little feeling like, but you could do this. Like it's weekends. And I thought, oh, what a nice way to give up a weekend for myself to learn. And I, I love the definition of yoga. It's the science of our mind. Yeah. No, and when we master the science of our mind, it's it just gives us an ability to tap into this limitless potential of whatever. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, it's just you speak of yoga with such wisdom um, that it felt like you've been ensconced in it for decades, not just four years. But I think that's the potency of... Mm-hmm. your inquisitive nature and desire to learn and uh, and also the the teacher you mentioned um, who, who was there guiding you through that. Um, is your mother still with you, Deb? No, my mom uh, passed in the spring of 2010. It was just, oh. yeah, it'll be 11 years this year. Um, and it's just interesting because it, it's like what we talked about. We learn about things as the decades and life moves forward. Yeah. And I really think that that generation, she was born in the 1930s. They didn't have access to coping strategies. They didn't have what we had. So it gave me, again, that introspection to, to lean in and, and learn because you didn't talk about your, your problems. And they had different modalities for treatment back then. And they also lived through trying times and then the wildness of the sixties. So Learning in school really, really helped me. And then even more when I was case managing, just, I'm going to say the onset of education and awareness around mental health, because they just didn't call it that then. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and, um, and that journey of putting everything on the table and coming to terms with your relationship with your mom, how has that gone? How are you... Stage wise, where do you feel you are? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a question I get a lot. And I go back to the eight year old girl on the farm. Mm -hmm. And I'm such a vivid visionary. I love to dream. I can visualize stuff like so infinite, like I can see it, I can smell it, I can taste it. And I always just thought, 
I want to be the mom. If I'm, if I'm blessed to grow up and get married and have children, I want to be like this amazing mom. So to answer your question, I became the mom that I wanted to have. That's so poetic. I love that. And, um, you know, I had a similar experience at the age of seven. I had this epiphany that uh, where I said, this isn't the way to do it. When I do it, I'm going to do it right. And so that informs mm-hmm. a lot of my my parenting. And of course, now, decades later, I realize the fallacy of this notion of doing it right. We can really just try and do it our best and be humble about the mistakes we make. And yeah. <laughs> forgiveness and if you're parenting well then your children will always give that to you i think it's really important my mom didn't show the whole spectrum of emotion Mm. i'm a big proponent of failing like i like to call it falling forward like no one will ever say well she didn't try that or she did try that or is there anything she doesn't try i get that a lot is there anything you don't do and i'm like I don't think so, because I grew up with a very gregarious, fun Irish Nana who was an amazing woman. And she always made light of everything and everything was fun. And, you know, that old cliche, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Why not? So I've, my kids have seen me succeed and fail and cry and laugh and be still and do things because I can or try things and really, really suck at them. <laughs> and I, I want them to, they have become heart-centered leaders because we have to own our character flaws. That's how authenticity is born. Yes, well And put it out there and go, yeah, like I really suck at that, but that's okay. At least I tried. I'm not going to be like, one of my executives who I held hands with and made a promise and looked into their eyes and said, I'm going to do this. I didn't know what the anticipated outcome of doing it was going to be. But 11 years later, I know I've saved a lot of executives. I know I've saved marriages and health and but owning our character flaws, if that is not one of the top one qualities of heart-centered leadership, I don't know what else is. Wow. No, it's uh, superbly said. You talked about um, wanting to take more of a preventative role in your coaching. And it sounds like you've been spectacularly successful at that with the number of people you've saved. Um, at what stage do you typically like to work with clients in your coaching practice? I'm really fortunate because my practice has grown organically. I got to experience that when I was doing case management. And I think people get to know who you are and what you're about. But I I didn't go at it the same way as I did case management because it was kind of like, you know, people will say, well, if you want something done, ask a busy person. I didn't want to be that person anymore. So I really honed in on who I wanted to work with. And people don't realize that executives and C-suite leaders, they are lonely. Mm-hmm. Getting to the top is lonely because who do they have to talk to? Exactly. They normally have 
a health problem. I don't usually get them super healthy. They usually have a failed marriage or two. So I get ones that are where I want to serve and, and, and life has happened during that proverbial climb. So I work a lot with them, but I also work with the millennials coming in now who are ambitious, have the work-life integration because work-life balance is garbage. And they have that 1950s, 1960s generational value of they're home for dinner. They're sharing the tasks, but they're getting the work done. It's such an interesting, interesting Mm -hmm. dynamic to see, but they still need help to make sure that that integration stays because they're so laser focused on success, but not to jeopardize the health of themselves or their family. So I'm kind of still in two spaces and then throw COVID in in the recipe and working with more teams now just on the remote readiness. I, I think it doesn't matter how much time we're on Zoom. We're all kind of Zoomed out, but putting in those healthy habits of self-care, talking about heart-centered leadership where self-care is foundational. So it's just kind of like I've got this big mixing bowl with different populations but it's all equating back to the same languaging. And that's what I love every day. I get a a different, a different team or a different executive every day. And again, but not to the point where I have to be so alone to recharge. I've got much better at calibrating my own energy management so that I can give a hundred percent of myself to my family, to my clients, and not ever let that integration tip to one side or the other. I stay very, very focused. And you can see I got my yoga mat here. It's, I was going (laughs) to remove it and I thought I'm going to leave it because I do. I start my day there. I go there at lunch Mm. and I go there at the end of the day. So I truly believe that 99% of all problems can be healed with a breath or just taking a few minutes to lie on a yoga mat. And I can say that wholeheartedly because I've been at that beyond.com. It's not a fun place to be, but to stay integrative and holistic and whole to myself and my self-care, I leave it here as a reminder for me. My breath is my anchor. My anchor is my breath. And I see it every time I get up and I always tune in and think, do I need five minutes or do I need to sit in the chair behind me for five minutes? And I take that time and space allotment to be. And I think that's why I'm able to do what I do and how I do it. Superb. That's really excellent. That's great that you do those check-ins. The body always knows. Um, We just have to get smart enough to listen to it. And uh, Mm -hmm. you clearly are at that stage. That's that's wonderful. Um, You talked about your kids and uh, we've spoken about your daughter. Uh, Share with us about your other children. 
So I have two daughters. Uh, my oldest daughter just got married on New Year's Eve, and her dad and I, her dad and I, got to watch it on Zoom because of COVID. Because we're in different cities, and we were in lockdown, so we weren't allowed to leave. And there was like I think six people or seven people total in the church. So thumbs up for Zoom. And our other daughter is still home with us, and she is in her second year of university. Well, fantastic. And um, you had shared about an incident with your younger daughter um, and uh, how she had a, an accident and uh, you relied on some of your skills mm -hmm. honed when you were doing that work and a situation that was very close to home. You know, it was, so it was our older daughter Oh, uh, yeah, she so I just got out of case managing um, some heavy neural trauma files. And then our daughter had a car accident um, coming home one day from our boat. She was mm. a new driver and her right front tire blew and she rolled her car at 90 oh. kilometers into a deep ditch. Oh, and God. talk about an awakening and almost didn't know from an identity perspective where to go. Was I the case manager or the mom? And I, mm. I cognitively and emotionally pinged ponged in that identity role for like seven years. It was tough. Um, she's doing, that's the, the daughter that just got married. So, but again, you know, I'm a big proponent. Uh, the light's always at the end of the tunnel, even if it's really dim. Right. And now she is pursuing her undergrad in neuroscience and okay. is going to help other people maybe have a little bit of an easier route than she did. Um, she also, can, uh, landed up getting Lyme disease oh, and that's been a journey for her, but the knowledge and the tenacity and the grit, she's also going to set up her own business. So it's neat to reflect that the branch isn't going to fall far from the tree from our family either. Wonderful. That's great. And, you know, I always just think things happen for a reason, a season or a lesson. I remember my Nana saying that. And sometimes we don't know which one it is, but I always believe that when we're in the valley and things aren't going well, there's only one thing that can come out of it and it's growth. Yeah. And I think that's the space that she's in. And our other daughter is all about social justice and peace and political science. And she's got big aspirations to, to run an NGO one day and, and really put a dent in environmental racism. So I got, I got two heart centered leaders I, I'm raising with my husband. So it's exciting. It's very exciting. That's congratulations on that. And it's a testament to the strong parenting that you and your husband have engaged in. Um, that's really extraordinary. Yeah, we, we always joke and say we earned every gray hair, which I call wisdom highlights, and I have many. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great term. I love that. I've uh, got a lot of gems, Deb, in this conversation. Lots of gems. Yeah, wisdom highlights. Uh, that's, that's superb. Well, uh, just the resilience that um, your daughter exhibited, which mm -hmm. I know 
you modeled for her, you and your husband is really superb. I mean, that's, those are the gifts. Those are the best gifts we can give our children, right? Well, and you know, um, it's so funny. My dad used to say to me, you know, kids are a life sentence. You know, we have them and, and we want to love and care and, and see the best, you know, for them for all of our life. And it's not going to come without valleys and peaks and successes, but being able to model and embrace and always know that there's room to come out on the other side, much like where we are with COVID. Yeah, it's sad, but it's just not a place that I stay because I know we will get back to where we're going to be. And you can have that mindset and apply it to anything in your life. So teaching our kids that, things happen. Sometimes it's for a reason. Sometimes it's not, but parenting them through with love and admiration and a teaching moment and, and giving them respect, regardless of how old they are. That's the depths of parenting that I think my husband and I have done. And yeah, I think we've done a pretty good job. We, we pat each other on the back every once in a while. That's important to do. It's important to acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Well, if, uh, tell us about uh, the show that you host, uh, the Change Book Radio Show. That was so. That was my first podcast. Um, I had that in 2015. I was in a collective book series, and that was so much fun. Yeah. And then I actually had to sell that podcast because I was in the middle of um, the rehab with our oldest daughter and, and life just got busy. So again, I had to set kind of priorities and, and give things up. So handed the reins over to another amazing entrepreneur and a coach in California. And then the first eight weeks of COVID last year, I kept having the same conversations with my clients. Mm -hmm. What do I tell my people? How should I act? And I kept saying, well, what do you mean? What do you tell your people? Like, this is where you pull out the imperfection. And we started, <laughs> and I kept listening to myself. And then I thought, okay, it's time for my next podcast. So that was the end of May of last year and uh, launched Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And we've been dropping two episodes a week since May. And I think we did 60 between May and December. And I love it. It's, it, you know, it's, there's yeah. nothing better than a beautiful conversation that's intellectually stimulating, thought provoking. And I, like you, I'm meeting amazing people from all over the globe, from all walks of life. And it gives me a reprieve from coaching. It allows me to be creative and innovative. And I love learning about the people. I love researching them, coming up with the questions. And again, I just feel I'm where I'm supposed to be right now. So well said. I couldn't have said it any better, but you're absolutely right. The best conversations are the ones that, um, where, you know, you feel warmth in your heart, but you also feel like stimulation in your neurons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that heart and head alignment. I love it. Yes, absolutely. Well, we're big fans of it too. And we, we are incorporated it in, in our logo. Um, if you're familiar I love with the Achieve logo, it's a brain and a heart and they're transmitting to each other the signal and um, 
we've positioned it where it's over a lowercase i while the rest of the word achieve is in caps i love it also a belief that uh, when our egos are in check that's and our hearts are aligned with our our brains that's when we can achieve <laughs> I, I love it and it's you know the world needs more of us yeah that's right well this is our, our purpose our sole purpose you could even say mm -hmm. and our mission and uh i completely agree with you uh this is a this is my fun time this is my recharge battery time it's mm -hmm. uh it's the best way to go um you do a fair amount of volunteer work um i believe in a hospice i do i haven't um i haven't been able to go since covid all of our staff um so once covid hit um, so I was what they call a direct service volunteer. So I assisted the nursing staff and the personal support workers. So I, I got to be right bedside with all of the, mm -hmm. the residents and just truly loved it. I've been doing it for five years wow. and COVID was kind of announced and all of us were no longer able to come and all of our staff actually got COVID and we actually lost one of our PSWs. Oh, I'm so sorry. So it was, um, it was a tough time, but it was really tough because I had a couple of friends who had loved ones there and they weren't able to come in and say goodbye. That's the tough part of COVID is not having that closure for people who've lost a loved one, whether it be to COVID or if they've been palliative. Um, but I, I never felt in all of my volunteering days as much as I belonged somewhere as I do there. Wow. That's extraordinary. And you offered them the gift of yoga and you modified it a little bit. I'd love for you to share. About, I did uh, some yoga for the staff. Yeah. And I, and I also did it. Um, so when I did graduate uh, from my yoga teacher training, my yoga teacher asked me what I was bringing to a mat. And I said, I was bringing a chair. <laughs> because I believe that yoga is for everyone. And because I, my, my Irish Nana was um, disabled, she had polio in her leg as a young girl. Mm -hmm. So I, I was around disability, they used to call it handicapped, which I never liked that term, right. my whole life. So it was my norm. So I only saw ability, I never saw the disability. Nice. So for me, I always had some level of population in my life where someone had an ailment or something. So I brought the chair, I did the chair yoga, and then I, uh, I offered it to the staff at hospice just to give them a break because they work long, long hours. I would do it with some of the residents. Sometimes uh, when they were in a lot of pain, we would just do a nice meditation and some breathing if they had some anxiety and they'd fall asleep and it was so cute because they'd wake up and they'd say oh Deborah I'm so sorry and I'm like it is like the best compliment ever <laughs> so I'd lead them in a meditation and then I would just sit with them and then I also taught in a few retirement homes and my oldest student was 103. Oh my goodness wow. Audrey she was like my she was my favorite. She started doing yoga when she was 50 and she did not look 103. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Deb, this has been such an exquisite conversation. 
I really can't thank you enough. Was there a question I missed? Something that um, you wanted to share, but I didn't ask you a the right question for you to be able to No, you know i this morning when i was doing my meditation i set my intent that we were just going to have a beautiful free-flowing conversation and it was going to go where it needed so it was lovely it was nice to be on the other side of the mic being relaxed and not have to worry about the flow of the show and i really i enjoyed our conversation when we chatted before this so i know there's going to be many more to come Absolutely, Deb. I certainly look forward to that. And I'm just so grateful to to Jeff and the universe that our, our paths have now crossed and uh, look forward to those varying future intersection points. Absolutely. Me too. And yes, so thankful for Jeff. And, and how about the name of his business? Is it not perfect? We met through a guy that runs a company called Enjoy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Very well, such a treat. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, Deb. Thank you again.